And welcome back to yet another exciting, super exciting episode of Digging Up the Past. I am your fearless host, Petrus Katupis, and in today's episode, we will be discussing a topic that I very much enjoy, Aeneas. Some of you may recall this Trojan hero from past episodes, one of which was entirely dedicated to both him and the Virgilian epic, the Aeneid. Anyway, I have a special guest with me. Correction, a returning special guest, Antony Adolf. He recently published an amazing book dedicated to Aeneas, and he is here to share some of that research. Welcome back to the show, Antony. For the listeners who uh, may have not caught you in the last episode, could you tell us a little bit about you? Well, hello, Petros. It's lovely. It's really lovely to be back. And thank you. I enjoyed the last interview we did, which was about Brutus of Troy, wasn't it? Um, so, so who am I? I'm, I'm speaking to you from Herefordshire in England on the borders of Wales. I'm a professional genealogist and I've been doing that for 34 years. And the, the reason I'm involved with these books about the, the, the ancient world and mythology is because in genealogy, if you go back a very long way up the oldest family trees, you go beyond the realms of fact and you go into the realms of mythology. Um, and just over the border in Wales here, we had Brutus of Troy, the, the mythological founder of Britain, who, who, who came out of Welsh mythology. And I, I was utterly intrigued to research him and find out who he was and whether he was real or not. A lot of people think he was, but I worked out that he wasn't. And then if you go even further back up Brutus's family tree, you get to his great grandfather, who they said was Aeneas. And so my interest in Aeneas didn't come through being a class. I'm, I'm not a classicist. I'm not. I'm not a, a linguist. I'm not anything like that. The, I'm not even an, in any way a professional archaeologist. I'm a genealogist, and I was interested in Aeneas because he appears in family trees as an ancestor, and I wanted to know what on earth was he doing there. Well, Aeneas is definitely he. He gets around, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about today. And. You spent a considerable amount of time. Well, b- before we get into this, I wanted to you know, share with the listeners, you recently published a book, In Search of Aeneas, Classical Myth or Bronze Age Hero. Yes. And I want to say, before we dive into the details, I enjoyed this book immensely. It's in my top list of books. It is extremely well-researched. And, and I say this in a good way, almost too researched. Um, there's a lot of information here. I mean, it's a big book. There's how many pages? It's it's That's almost about 220 pages. Yes. No, more than that. I'm looking. Oh, more. At, oh, yeah. I'm looking at it right now. Uh, uh, without. Oh, sorry. Least, 320. Yes, yes, yes it, it's yes. over 300. 315 is like the last without the a lot of proofreading, glossary, and yeah, but a lot of indexing. <laughs> yes. Can I first? Can I say? That I re- it's really you're you're re- it's really lovely that you you enjoyed the book and that you approved of it because you have spent a lot of time studying things and you actually know what you're talking about. So the fact that you like it thank means you. a great deal to me because you're actually an expert in this. So thank you very much. And secondly, yes, I know I, I apologize for the length. It's 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 the subject. It's a walloping great big subject, and there was a lot to analyze and a lot to read and a lot to understand and i i I tried to pare it down as much as i could believe me i'm I'm a good editor um, and i did edit but there were a lot there are a lot of areas of aeneas's career that have been analyzed 
again and again by scholars, and they've been written about, and different theories have been mooted and thrown about. And I read all these, worked my way through them, and I came to my conclusions as to what was right and what was wrong. But I thought, well, there's no point me just saying, oh, well, I think Aeneas did this, and I think this one is right and this one is wrong. Because who am I? I'm just some sort of some bloke in England, you know. What, what, what opinion? What, what, how does, what, what, where does my opinion count? So I haven't really given my opinion. I've, I, but what I have done, and, what, and the reason why the book's quite long, is I've explained what all the different arguments were and what all the different theories were. And then, having explained them, I've then presented the e- actual evidence, which, which which is often in in amongst the arguments, but it's quite difficult to get them out. So I've got the evidence out. And then said, well, look, here's the evidence. And it, in my opinion, it just sort of clearly stacks up to favour this opinion rather than that opinion. So, and I thought if I left out the arguments and I left out the explanations, a book, I, any book I, I wrote would be pretty sort of pretty worthless. So um, I presented the evidence for, um, for the reader to analyse and consider themselves. And that's what you do in genealogy, by the way. The good genealogists, like me, <laughs> present the evidence. We don't say... You know, here are all your ancestors. There you go. And um, we say, look, here's the evidence. And so if you look at the evidence and you agree with this, then that's who your ancestors are. We don't just pronounce some, we don't just make pronouncements from thrones on high um, and, and, and expect people to believe us because, because why, why should they? So, yeah. So the book is, is a book of evidence, really. That's what you'd say. It's a book of evidence from which readers can draw their own conclusions. Well, it's 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 funny that you say that you've gone through all the scholarly notes of Aeneas, and it needs to be noted that it's not just modern scholarship, even ancient scholarship. I mean, you look to the ancient writers, but before we get into that, here's the complication, and, and you sort of get that impression very early on in your book, and that is you have the, the Iliad that was canonized post- you know, Trojan War. So whether it was with Homer at, you know, the 8th century BCE or later on in Athens in the 5th or 4th century BCE, there were many traditions going around before it was officially canonized. And then the same thing happens before the Virgilian epic. There were many stories until Virgil sat down and then collected bits and pieces and then massaged it a little bit and then said, here you go. Unfortunately, it wasn't completed because, you know, Virgil died before he could finish that uh, epic tale of Aeneas. But before that, I mean, there was just so much going on. So for you to go around and collect all these bits and pieces and try to create this single cohesive narrative, I mean, I can only imagine what's a challenge. Yeah, it was, it was hard. <laughs> it was hard work. But it, it was a question of collecting up the evidence. So, and and the thing is, when when people when scholars were discussing the origins of Aeneas and particularly the origins of Aeneas as the founder of Rome, they they would draw on not only what's in the Aeneid, as you say, not only what's in Virgil's Aeneid, but they'd also draw on all these other bits of traditions where we sort of have have sort of snippets from here and there of different stories, and so a lot of the arguments around. Um, Aeneas as the founder of Rome are based on some, some of the lesser known stories about Aeneas, which aren't in the Iliad right, or, or the Aeneid. So, so, so that's why it was important to sort of dig into those, um, into the, into those other traditions and find out clearly what they said and establish and and the really and to date them to to date these different stories because I found in many cases people would present arguments about Aeneas 
uh, and, and they present the evidence on the basis of on the they present the evidence so as to back up their own arguments. But that's confusing. And, and what I what I used to do is sort of take these uh, the bits of evidence that were sort of stacked up to support different people's arguments and try and sort of strip out the arguments and just get to the actual evidence itself, and then try and put the evidence in date order. Because often, just by doing that, once you've got the evidence in date order, you can see how a story evolved. You can see how it started off as something very simple and then it evolved into something complicated. And if you don't put the evidence in date order, it just looks like a complete unholy jumble. But but putting in date order, I found, was, it was a very useful technique. It sounds, sounds obvious, but actually a lot of scholars don't do that. They just take all the bits that support their argument and say, look, here it all is. And then they take all the bits that don't support the argument and say, here's that. But we're not going to take any notice of it. And you think, well, actually, yes, let's let's look at it all you know, across the board. Let's ignore your argument. Let's just look at what the evidence is. And it's amazing how often I found I was disagreeing with with very sort of reputable, highbrow um, scholars and professors. And they were sort of putting forward these grandiose arguments. And I thought, well, actually, I've looked at the evidence myself and actually I don't agree with you. So I said that. And I've said that several times in the book. And all I was doing, by the way, I wasn't trying to advance some sort of crazed idea that Aeneas actually came from Mars or, or, or Cambridgeshire or something like that. All I was actually just trying to do was work out how his myth might have evolved at all. And I think having looked at the evidence in a sort of new and critical way, and as I say, put it in date order, I think the story came out pretty straightforwardly. I think it's a pretty clear story. You can see how his myth evolved as myths do, from something quite simple at the beginning into something monumentally vast at the end. But you can, it, once you understand how it did evolve, well, then you can understand it and you can appreciate it and not be sort of terrified by it, which I think some people are, aren't they? It's funny. A lot of the references that you reach out to or, you, or reach out to, a lot of the references that you cite, I actually have on my bookshelves. I have multiple yeah. bookshelves in my office, at least one, two, three... Four, five, six, six bookshelves. And I can see you surrounded by them. <laughs> yes. Uh, completely stacked, filled, and, and so forth. And a lot of the, the the research that you cite, I'm like, oh, I have this book. Oh, I have this book. I, so I, I, I actually, I actually uh, found it uh, pretty entertaining and, and, and appreciated that you hit a lot of the same uh, references that I have throughout my mm. research. Because I mean, they're not infinite. But, they're not infinite. There isn't an infinite no. body of material on any of this. But, but no, there isn't read, much at all. But when you read, but when you read scholarly papers, it's sort of the way they have this sort of way of um, they re the same material keeps coming up in different forms, and you think, hang on, but that's just the same bit of information that's in someone else's book or something. So, so once you, you, I collected them together, they, I think it's all in there. If I missed any, I apologise. But I honestly think that book's got all the evidence in it and in the right order. That's why I appreciated this this book because I now I want to say it's become the authoritative story of Aeneas. And please, please let me quote you on that. <laughs> go go for it. I thank you. Yeah, I, it's it's got literally from beginning to end, and and I want to touch on this. On the fact that, number one, it's about Aeneas, the mythological Aeneas, but as if he could have been a real man. You emphasize that if Aeneas did exist, not that Aeneas existed, I want to make sure that there's a clear division here. Because you're not trying to prove that Aeneas was a factual individual. You're trying to prove that this is what Aeneas's life would have been like had he had lived during this time. 
But at the same time, you also share how the story of Aeneas evolved from the time of, you know, Homer to the time of the Caesars and beyond that. And and I want to get the and beyond that to the beyond that point towards the end of our conversation, because that's very important. You, it, the end of your book actually highlights things that I've struggled with, uh, things that I've thought about um, and the connection to early Christianity and, and, and so forth. But we'll touch on that later on in this conversation. So when you start reading this book, you start in the the Dardanelles, in, in, in Troy. In, so you, one thing that I really enjoyed about your book, uh, one of many things, is the fact that you yourself visited a lot of these sites. And it's funny because in our last conversation, you had told me to pick up, uh, although they're much older books, uh, books by D.H. Lawrence focusing on the Etruscans. And when I was starting to read the D.H. Lawrence books, it was amazing to see his descriptions of a lot of these locations that you that, that, that he would visit. So I found a little bit of influence of D.H. Lawrence in your writing. And I don't know if that was intentional, but you're visiting these sites and you are very, you can, the reader can build a picture based on the way you describe a lot of these locations. Like, hey, you know, this may have looked like this during, you know, Virgil's time, but this is what I saw. Or, or, or whatever. It doesn't matter. My point is the fact that you are visiting a lot of these sites, uh, not all of them. Uh, I don't remember. I don't think you visited Carthage and you, you know. No. Well, actually, because the great, the real shame of it was that we were getting round to Carthage and then the Arab street, the Arab spring took place. Oh, so this, this was, all, yeah. so this goes back because you know that, I mean, you have to assume that this research goes back you know, at least over a decade. So it goes that far back. Huh? Oh, two, no, two days. Oh, no, I started about 20 years ago. And I mean, I mean, incredible. we lived in an incredible time that you can actually go and visit these sites around the Mediterranean because, I mean, of course, people for hundreds of years have been fascinated by Aeneas and, and they just couldn't travel that far. It was it was out of the question. Or or if they could, they'd make one. I mean, Byron, for example, Lord Byron made, made, they, they, they made one journey um, and, and that's all you could possibly do. Whereas with, um, with, with the sort of cheap flights and everything, you could sort of, I could pop off to Turkey. I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I went. I mean, it wasn't that many, but it was about sort of five or six. But but certainly there were, I, I'd come back from Troy, think, hang on, I didn't look at this and I didn't look at that. And I'd be fascinated to go here. So I thought, OK, well, I'll go back next year and do it. So it was easy. Uh, and unfortunately, yes, I was just, just getting around to a very nice trip to go to Carthage when the Arab Spring um, erupted. And I thought, oh, I might just leave that one because um, I'm, I'm dedicated to this research, but I don't actually want to be um, be held at gunpoint and then, um, you know, sort of killed. So, so I thought I'll, I'll leave that. Um, so that's a shame. But in fact, I, as I said in, in, my, in, in the book, Virgil clearly hadn't been to, um, to Carthage anyway. And, and the whole Carthaginian episode is a sort of, it's almost a sort of dream sequence um, within... Um, the more sort of earthy, realistic story of, of Aeneas's journey. So, as, and, and, and Virgil was clearly imagining what 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 might have happened when Aeneas went to Carthage. So I thought, well, okay, that's fair enough. I'll I'll, I'll just do my research remotely and um, 
and leave that. So, but everywhere else, yes, I mean, it was it was great to have the opportunity of, of being able to travel so much with with um, Homer and Virgil as my guides. Um, some lovely, lovely trips. Yeah, and pretty much everywhere I went, there was some insight would come out of it. Um, I like the fact you very much like the fact that you compare me to D.H. Lawrence. That's incredibly flattering. Um, actually, the the, the 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 writer who did inspire me to do this was, in fact, Robin Lane Fox. His books, um, particularly his book Travelling Heroes, where he um, he analysed the, the way Greek culture first came to early Rome. Um, and he was studying the way um, merchants from the island of Ibia um, in Greece, um, got to got to the west coast of, of Italy, um, and he did all that by research on the ground. And he made a, he makes a great point in his books about the fact that he's been to every single place he's written about, um, and and studied the studied the the, the geography and, and looked carefully at the geography. So he he was my great inspiration, actually, Robin Lane Fox and D. H. Lawrence. Yeah, he he wrote a wonderful book about some um, going off to um, explore the the the, the, tr- the tombs of the Etruscans. Um, in the countryside north of Rome, and and we went as pretty much as tourists, really, because they're they're all sort of tourist sites now. Um, but when he when he went, he was sort of he was sort of travelling around on a on a donkey or on a. Um, oh, he got of, too uh, descriptive, uh, in my opinion. In some cases, oh, he was very descriptive. <laughs> Just uh, you, he, was, he, he even uh, describes the 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 villagers, you know, to the most minute of details. Yes, that were guiding him. I, I he's yeah. Very descriptive in his book, and he went to great lengths to 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 travel distances. We could just sort of drive along, park, yes. pay a ticket, and go in. He he took a week, you know, to even find where these tombs were. So so yeah, really exciting. It's a book. It's called Amongst. I think it's called Among the Etruscans. Um, and it's I hope you got it there. And it's a, it's a really uh, wonderful. Yeah, I have it on book. my shelf here. I just i I'd have to look it up. There's there's a lot of books on here. I'd I'd have to look it up. I. Anyway, the point is that it's it's yes. I mean, you can it's you, you can do better research if you're in the if you're in the place exactly. Um, and and and, 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 it, and being in the place sort of forces you to understand the text properly. If you yes. skim read something, you know you can sort of misunderstand. But if you're actually in, if you're actually Eden Troy, saying okay, right, I want to now see the see this this mound that High Homer describes. Where is it? Well, you've really got to you've got to really study. The book, the, the the text properly to work out where where that mound is and where this burial mound is, and and the act of doing that really engaging with the texts to but say, even look, on, I, you know, I, even on a personal level, just to be able to go, breathe the air, visit the sites mm. that you know this this mythological character is said to have visited. I mean, it must have been a surreal experience. Like this is, you know, this is where. Aeneas would have been this is where what he you know would have done it, it it takes me back to to my childhood you know we used to you know I'm in I'm in the Chicagoland area in the, in the U.S. this is where I spent the majority of my time but when my parents could afford it we would spend our summers in in Greece visiting family and, and, and sightseeing and it's a different experience out there you know to just open the door and just breathe in the history that's all around you so my my father's from Sparta, or a small village called Petrina. Oh, I didn't, I didn't ask you that before. You're a Spartan. Right? Well, half Spartan. This explains yes. everything. <laughs> and my mother is from um, Tripoli in in Arcadia or Arcadia, which is you know how how they pronounce it. But down the street from Tripoli is a little. Is it? It's not little. It's 
it's actually written about in the Iliad. It has a lot of historical significance called uh, Tegea, or I think it anglicized it's pronounced Tegea, T-E-G-E-A, or... T yes, no, well, that's in there. But, we we went, we went there, yes. yes. And yeah. I remember as a child going to Tegea, and, you know, growing up, there weren't a lot of parks or, or things like that. I mean, we're talking about 80s and the 90s and, and, and so forth. And I remember... There's just columns, you know, like columns from, from old buildings toppled over. And this is what we used as our playground. We're jumping off of them. We're using mistress. I mean, the history is around you everywhere. I used to hear stories because my mother's side or both my parents, I mean, they, they come from, um, they come from, you know, farmers. And on my mother's side, I used to hear stories about my grandfather digging up in the farms, in the fields, like statues, uh, broken statues of, of women or, you know, things that, that yes. date back to the Straight classical period. The classical but yes. the, the problem is, instead of turning it into the authorities, they would just toss it out. Because what happens is the authorities or the government would come in, give you next to nothing for the land, and then you lose the land and a good chunk of what brings money into your household. So the history is everywhere. It's just you don't know how much of it is still buried or how much of it is hidden because people are afraid of losing what they have. I don't know. It's it's a magical world to me. And and for you to be able to go and I, I liken it to Heinrich Schliemann, right? Iliad in hand, he's walking, you know, through the Trojan site and or of Troy and and just pointing out this is what Homer wrote, this is what Homer describes, and and you're essentially doing the same thing. Yes, I felt a bit like Schliemann sometimes. He had that rather sort of grand air, didn't he? I think the point I've made that's all all interest. Everything you said is interesting, and I agree with you that 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 the local the farmers are probably the the worst people to be sort of looking after these places because they they don't really put any great value on the on the archaeology they dig up. But yes, breathing the air was incredible. Being there just on a personal level was 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 lovely. It was a great privilege and it was very enjoyable. But I think what I really took from it was sort of. The, the way in which that, those landscapes inspired the myth makers. So it wasn't just thinking the, the mythological Aeneas, or possibly in the case of Troy, the real Aeneas, he was here, this is what it would have been like. But a lot of the people who created those myths were also in those places and were people in some cases from those places. And so being in the places was, it gave me, I think, a great insight into the mindsets of the people who created the myths in the first place, and that was important. And and just and and sometimes just be able to sort of see the connections. So, so the fact that you could say stand on the you could stand on the coast of Troy, um, and you can look across and you can see the island of Samothraki. And yes, you can. By the way, that's that's one of the things which was there was a question as as to whether you could actually see it. Well, I've seen it, so there we are. That's easy. And so you can see how these places link up. And so when the myths link Samothraki to Troy, it's not just two random places that people have sort of brought together. They're places you can they can be seen from each other. Um, and so just understanding the landscape on that level was important. And 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 so, so being yes being there was important and having to engage with the maps and with the sources in order to plan the trips again raised a lot of questions and then forced me to answer them just forced me to spend the time studying them so I could answer them and so so I mean for example for the section of, of the book which is about Troy and how the myth of Aeneas fits into the, the landscape of Troy 
I was really just very curious in making visits there, thinking, well, I do want to see all these different places, and how do I find this out? And so I, I, then I found sort of some quite obscure books, like, for example, um, Professor Cook of the British School in Athens wrote this extraordinary study, of, made an extraordinary study of the, the Trode, the area around Troy, back in the 1950s and 60s. And he, he he spent years and years sort of going around exploring. Um, and so I read this quite sort of dry as dust book, but I was trying to get out of it. OK, where do I go? Where, where Specifically, where do I go to see that bit of the Iliad or that bit of the Iliad? And so, so I, I, I sort of used, I, I sort of drew out of these books the, the, the information I wanted, which I then was able to use to, 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 to write this book and to sort of try to bring the story alive for readers. And so... And I, I stood on the shoulders of giants in a way, uh, in the sense that a lot of people had done a lot of work for me. And it was Professor Cook, of course, who was the one who first identified a possible site for Paleoskepsis, the place where um, Aeneas's father lived. And he did that just in the course of his research into the area. He wasn't trying specifically to say, I want to discover where Aeneas's father lived. It was just part of Professor Cook's academic work. But for me, when I, I read his idea, the Lachia place where you could go to see a little tiny little city um, in, in the woods where Aeneas's father could have lived, I thought, right, we're going there. What, come what may, we are going to go. And, and, we, and as I describe in the book, we actually did manage to go to this place and find it. And that was before Google Maps, by the way. And before before GPS on mobile phones, so we were using traditional maps um, and and a lot of legwork um, and 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 the sense of achievement in in finding it was great. And also then that opened up all sorts of windows for uh, it enabled me to understand the stories um, of Aeneas's origins um, in far more detail. And I came up with a theory, just a theory, as to how Aeneas's myth might have originated. Um, as, as you know from reading the book, which I put in the book. And it's only a theory. It's based on the places. But I think it's a... Well, I don't know, you can tell me. I think it's a reasonably sensible theory. We'll see. No, no it, it is. And, and I, don't want to, I don't want to reveal too much for the reader because I want the reader to discover this, go on this journey that you're essentially yeah. taking them on and just kind of see it the way that you saw it, right? Uh, ha- have, have Draw the dots the way that that you are presenting the evidence in. But going back to the book and the book structure, so the book is divided into two pieces, and it makes sense. You have the Greek piece, and then you have the Roman piece, because even though these two sort of come together eventually, they're not. You know, the, the, the view of Aeneas in the Greek world is not exactly the same as Aeneas in the, the Roman world. Uh, so I, I appreciate the clear division because it's not so clear for someone coming in and, and starting to you know read up on the Aeneas uh, character. Because in the Greek text, while Aeneas is mentioned and while Homer alludes to Aeneas being, you know, he, he is saved from death multiple times, twice in the Iliad. Because, and as Poseidon uh, mentions, I believe... He is is destined to survive. Exactly. But that sort of leaves a huge question mark for the Greek audience, and then later the the Roman audience. But destined for what? And then you start to see, even before uh, Rome hijacked this, this Aeneas myth, you start to see early ideas, or I should say ideas, but early representations of Aeneas escaping Troy in Greek vase art, 
a lot of which was found in Etruria or, or you know, the Turanian region and, and Sicily and, and, and so forth. But you also see in the Aegean, Greeks and, and, and people of the Greek world starting to latch on to the Aeneas being destined for something more, such as in Thessaloniki, in, you know, the northern Aegean, very close by to Samothraki, you have a village. And, and I'm actually, I was, this is one of those moments where I was waiting for you to reference this site because I didn't know if you came across it. But you did. And there's a an ancient site that dates to the maybe the, the 6th century or 5th century BC, I think the 6th century, called Aenea. Yeah. And this site, this ancient site, latched on to the Greek myth, claiming that Aenea was founded by Aeneas after he escaped from Troy. I mean, to the point where they're, they're minting coins with the picture of Aeneas carrying Anchises, his father, as you would imagine, from the burning citadel, you know, as, as Troy's burning down. Yeah. So even the early Greeks or the early Greek world was starting to figure out what happened to Aeneas. And, you know, later Romans cite now lost works from uh, uh, Stesichorus, uh, who is the, a 5th century writer, I think 5th century BC writer, claiming that Aeneas escaped and, and traveled uh, westward to Hesperia, wherever that is. Although, according to the, which you also referenced, the Tabula Iliaca, yes. <laughs> that that must have been Italy, right? But they referenced Desicotus, uh, which was a Greek, an early Greek writer. Uh, that yes, that's right. I think the problem latching is the, problem onto is the, the, they, the tradition. The problem is they, refer, they reference him. But they don't say whether the whole story they're telling on the tabula iliaca is all from him. I think that's the problem. Yes. Um, and so that so then you have these great long scholarly debates over what what did Stesichorus say and what didn't he? Which um, no, but I mean the, the the tabula iliaca. We don't really know what they were for, but they could just have been to ch- to show children to teach children the stories. So so they're, they're not quite as um as sort of monumentally grand as some of these um great academic papers might make out and um but it's uh, that, that was a sort of issue i had to wrestle with yes because because in in some accounts you'd say well Stesichorus said that he went to italy well he didn't and and, and that's 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 the bottom line there isn't it i don't know how we got onto that because that Stesichorus is quite a complicated subject oh you're, no, right, you're talking about the way the was... you're talking about the way the greek world was you're talking about that yes the way homer sort of leaves you hanging with this exactly with this. Yeah, the, the, and because the, he leaves uh, you hanging, now traditions Aeneas, are being made. He 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 is destined to. He won't be killed in the Trojan War. He is destined to survive, said Poseidon. But then that's it. That's the last Homer mentions of, exactly of, of, of Aeneas. And so I suppose, like any, um, you you leave. What well, they say, you know, if you, if you introduce a, a gun into a play, you know, at some point, you know, it's going to be someone's going to get shot. And so, so in a way, Homer sort of it raised this issue. But as you said earlier. Homer was only one person writing about the myths of Troy, and there were actually a lot of other epic poets also writing, or also telling stories about about Troy. Um, and and Homer, although Homer is now considered to be the, the 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 poet of of the Trojan War, at the time Homer was writing, he wasn't. He was just one person telling one story, which was about Achilles. It wasn't about Aeneas, and so that's one of the reasons why he didn't sort of tie up the loose end of Aeneas, because that's not what actually not what he was writing about. 
um, he was simply sort of relating a bit of um, mythology um, to do with Aeneas and then sort of leaving it. Um, and then and then and so the idea which was developed was that um, the, the reason why Homer said Aeneas is destined to survive and then just left it is that is because the theory is that the people listening to the original Iliad being recited were people who had some connection to Aeneas, possibly people claiming descent from him. And there's this idea that there was a, a, a dynasty of kings. In fact, yes, in fact, we know from other sources there was a dynasty of kings living not far from Troy who claimed to be his descendants, only claimed. And as a genealogist, Petros, I know how many times people claiming things claiming ancestors got it wrong, um, because when you can go back to original records and check things, it's amazing how many claims to grand ancestors weren't, aren't actually true. So so I would never say that these people were descended from Aeneas, but they certainly claimed that they were. Um, and so by just throwing that little bit of that little snippet about Aeneas into the Iliad, Homer was perhaps just humouring these local kings who, 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 who were presumably having him round to recite his epic. And he thought, oh, I'd better sort of, I'd better put Aeneas in. Might better cast him in a positive light, and that's probably all it was. But but from that ambiguity, of course, once you once you introduce the ambiguity and you you raise the the idea of Aeneas as this potentially rather exciting character who was destined by the gods and even by fate itself, by fate, who's destined to survive. Well, of course, that sort of almost sort of invites later myth makers to to latch on to latch on to what you've said. And my goodness, did they latch on to it? And then that's that's and that's really the whole Roman story of Aeneas is all just from this one little sort of hint that that Homer dropped, and then and Poseidon saying it's fated that Aeneas will survive, then transmogrifies this into this wonderful phrase, one wonderful um, prophecy that that um, Jupiter, the king of the gods himself, utters towards the beginning of Virgil's Iliad. Where he sort of says, "I, I, it was de- Aeneas is destined to survive, and and I've given his descendants, the Romans, I've given them empire without end." So, so Virgil took Homer's little prophecy and then turned it into a great prophecy uttered by God Himself that the Roman Empire was destined to last forever and destined to rule the world. We need to emphasize, though, and and you make this clear in your book, is that it was propaganda, the Virgilian mm-hmm. epic. It's made abundantly clear that it's pure propaganda for for Caesar Augustus. You know, he traces himself from Julius Caesar and Julius Caesar goes back in time where, you know, they they trace their lineage through Ascanius, who at some point is renamed by the Romans to to Euli or or, or something. I don't remember the the name. I-U-L-U-S, yes, yes. But... you know they trace their lineage lineage all the way back to Aeneas uh, and Caesar Augustus is you know he's the first emperor of imperial Rome so yeah. he it's, needs it's to their find family, a way to it's unify their family story hmm. yes but he needs to find a way to unify and legitimize you know the not only the 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 empire but his claim to I'm going to call a throne even though you know he yeah. wasn't a king but you know he needs to say hey. I am destined for this. I come from something greater, and uh, here I am. And this is, you know, the time of of peace. This is sort of the start of the Pax Romana, or what will eventually become the Pax Romana. I mean, this is. It, there was a reason for this, and you know, Virgil was a a close associate or friend of his that was able to put it all together for him, despite the fact that Virgil. <laughs> 
wasn't happy with what he had written and and uh, wanted it destroyed. But here we are. It wasn't, and it, I guess yes. it's a good thing, right? Because you know this. Well, is... it was Virgil. It was Virgil writing propaganda, as you rightly say. But he was he was but he tempered the propaganda with a degree of humanity that the um, the commissioners of the propaganda probably didn't really want or need. But once it was there, it was so beautiful that they they, they left it. But it all came out of a family story. And as I say, I'm a, as a genealogist. Every day I receive emails from people saying, my family story is X, my family story is Y, can you try and prove it? And in, invariably, when you look into the family story, you find it's not true, and then you work out why it's not true, and you can see how the family story arose out of a little misunderstanding or a little chance remark or even a little a joke someone once made. And so with the, with the Julian family... Um, once the myth of Aeneas in general had taken hold in Rome, um, about 200 years before Caesar's time, the Julian family were claiming, laid claim, of course, to an ancestor called Julius or, or Eulus, so I-U-L-U-S. And when you read Homer, um, Homer had um, different bynames for, 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 for Troy. Um, and the Greeks had different names for Troy. And, one, and, and you have Ilios and Ilion. And so you can see them thinking I-L-I-O-N is Troy and I-U-L-U-S is our ancestor. Oh, that's quite similar, isn't it? And so somebody said, oh, I wonder if our ancestor Eulus came from Ilion. And once that was said, that then set off the, the, the trail that led to the family story becoming coming true. And, and in, 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 when I look at family, I look at these families all the time and grandpa will say, well, he'll say something like, well, our ancestor, Eulus, sounds a bit like Troy, doesn't it? And, and then 20 years later, you'll say, well, I remember my father used to say that Eulus came from Troy. Um, and then 20 years after that, you'll say, well, Grandpa swore blind <laughs> that Eulus was a Trojan. And not only was he a Trojan, he was the son of Aeneas. And, and, and these stories just grow up and they grow up. And I had a very similar story in my own family. I don't bore you with it, but it arose in just the same way. Um, and it became gospel. It became absolute solid fact. And I've argued on that basis that, that when you look at the way Julius Caesar behaved, he behaved in almost a sort of a superhuman way. He, he, the things he did were utterly extraordinary. He, he conquered Gaul, for goodness sake. He conquered the whole of, the whole of Gaul with just a small army. Um, and then he crossed the channel and he came over to where I am now, he over, over to Britain. What an extraordinary thing. How did he have the nerve to do it? Well, actually, I'm just fiddling here on my desk. I've got, I've got one of his coins. It's, it's a little silver denarius which he had minted to pay his troops. And on one side, it's got Aeneas carrying his, his um, father and carrying one, some of the household gods of Troy and the word Caesar stamped down the side. And on the other side, it's got a picture of Aeneas's mother Aphrodite or Venus. I'll, I'll hold. You can see it. The, the, you, I can, I can see it. I can a, see it. There's a wonderful head of Venus there. And of course, you think, how did he have the nerve to do this? And the answer is, he believed he was descended from Aeneas, and that he, he believed he was descended through Aeneas from the goddess Aphrodite, who was married, of course, to the uh, to Mars, the god of war. And so, in his head. He wasn't thinking, I'm just this sort of little Roman with a few soldiers trying to conquer Gaul. He thought to himself, I'm the descendant of a goddess. So, of course, I can do this. And he told his soldiers all this as well. And they thought, we're following a god. And that's how that's how he achieved what he did. 
And then then he came back, as we know, he came back down, down to, to Italy. He crossed the Rubicon, which which you, you could weren't supposed to do, and and made himself dictator of Rome. And when, well, and, and then to bolster his esteem in Rome, he said, "Look, you're not just being ruled. I'm not just some tin pot soldier who's, who's who's taken over your city. I'm the descendant of of Aphrodite of Venus." And 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 this was the, this was the family story that the Emperor Augustus inherited. And so for his own standing in Rome, for the way other people saw him, but most importantly, I think, Petros, the way he saw himself, the source of his own self-confidence was this family it's, story. And so, it's so similar... that's what he was doing. Promoting the story of Aeneas was promoting his own self-esteem and his own standing in the eyes of literally the world. That's it's sort of the same important. as Alexander the Great, right? He found exactly himself to the be same. descendant it's... of Achilles and, and Zeus and and that obviously gave him this confidence to literally conquer the known world at the time, or you know, yes. to the known world east of uh, Greece. But yes. it's I, about it's... what's going on in their own heads. That's what, exactly. It's, it's all about that. It's never mind what other people thought. It's the main thing is what they thought. Yes, and that and they that's where their self confidence came. And from. they were able to convince others because of yeah. that confidence. And and it it it's funny that you talk about you know these traditions and so forth. But you know your own genealogical research for for yourself, and you do mention this in the book. Obviously, you know this is all based on legend, tradition, and so forth. But you can trace yourself back to indirectly to Brutus, and in turn to Aeneas. No, I do. My, my one of my I can connect back to the Mortimers who were actually here in the Welsh marches who laid claim to Brutus as as an ancestor. Yes, yes. But, but everybody in Britain, Britain can connect themselves to everyone. Can. Yeah. <laughs> everybody can. It's so nice to have that connection. Yeah, it's nice to have that connection. It wasn't important. It wasn't. It wasn't that important. But but yes, it, yes, it is. It is there. Yes, in 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 the genealogy and in a correct genealogy, by the way. I got to make sure it was right. So, actually, can I, I just throw in, uh, in yeah. your, as you pause for breath? Go ahead. That when um Saddam, when Saddam Hussein got himself into into supreme power in Iraq. One of the things, one of the interesting things he did was he commissioned some genealogists to prove that he was descended from. And I'm going to, and I can't, for the life of me, remember who it was. I think it. Might let me guess. Tam- let me guess. Nebuchadnezzar. No, it, no, it was it was it was someone like Tamerlane. Anyway, it doesn't. In a way, it doesn't matter. He he decided he was descended from this great hero of of, of Iraq's um, glorious past. And having made the decision, he then told the genealogists, "You will go and find the evidence, won't you?" And the genealogists said, "Yes, we will." And they did, of course. And exactly exactly what Henry the Seventh did. Henry the Seventh decided he wanted to be descended from Brutus of Troy, and he sent some genealogists off. And the genealogists knew if they didn't come back with the right answer, they'd be in trouble. And so and so, but the point is that Saddam is saying. And Henry the Seventh and Julius Caesar, they needed these family stories to bolster their self confidence, and they then manufactured the evidence to prove the stories, and they got everyone else to believe the stories. But you see, did everyone else? Did everyone? When, when did the people around Caesar? When Caesar said, "I'm descended from from Afri- from Venus," I'm sure his soldiers probably thought, "Yeah, yeah, marvelous." You know, we'll, we'll believe that. But did everyone else? Did the people in Rome? Did the, did the man on the street eating his eating his oysters? Did he believe it, or did he think, "What a pompous old so and so"? You know, how does he know that? So we don't actually know. And and one of the things in the book, 
which I, I, I threw in there, is that some of the pictures of Aeneas you see in Pompeii, for example, are not pictures of this great, pious, noble ancestor. Um, they're, 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 uh, one, there's one picture um, showing him and his family as dogs with rather um, obvious bits dangling off them that we won't go into in case there are children listening to listening to this. But um, they, uh, there were some people in some people in Pompeii were thinking, what a load of old cobblers these Caesars are talking. So, so I think the most so I think the most important point is what did these people themselves think? And 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 the Aeneid was commissioned by Augustus because he believed he wanted to believe his family story was true and he wanted to see it put up in lights, so to speak. And, and Virgil did that. Well, he, 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 Virgil gave Augustus more than he could possibly have hoped for because Augustus wanted a nice grand epic and he got one of the greatest pieces of literature ever written in the history of humanity. That wasn't bad, was it? No, and, and actually, I'm glad we're touching on, on Caesar and, and Augustus right now because we're getting to the point where Aeneas eventually dies <laughs> and his death actually meant more to you know what would eventually become the Roman Empire, in my personal opinion, than his life. You know, he was a pious man. He was a strong, you know, warrior. All of which was you know an honorable man. All of which was you know great and somebody to admire and look up to. Even though he had some you know uh, human failures, like some human okay. qualities that uh, were less than great. But that's besides the point. His death was very symbolic. Uh, which was very similar to what happened to Julius Caesar, and that is his apotheosis. You know, he was essentially elevated to become immortal and be with the gods, you know, Mount Olympus or whatever, to, you know, be able to essentially grant wishes to those who pray to him and offer sacrifices, right? Mm. So the fact that you have this, this hero, and the same thing happened with Caesar after he died and, and the oh, Roman emperors down, down the line is they died and then they were immortalized and rose up to be oh, gods in, in, in this huge Roman uh, pantheon of, of deities. And it's the thing is, this is the, what makes this interesting is the fact that some of this predates Christianity. And, uh, you know, this whole idea of resurrection and resurrection into heaven, it's, it's underlying themes. And it's not just Aeneas, it's also Romulus, you know, who's eventually worked in to be a descendant of Aeneas. He had the same thing. He, he was resurrected and, and rose to heaven. So there's a lot of strong connection and similarities with Christianity that you touch on. But I wanted to bring up before, and, and I know this may not sit well with some of my listeners, but it's a theory that's been put forth, and I want to emphasize it's it's just a theory. But there's a book that's been published, and a documentary that was made on the publication by uh, James James Valent, Valiant and, and Warren Fahey, Fahey, I, I, I am probably butchering their names, where they claim that the Romans, especially under the, the, the reigns of uh, Vespasian and Titus, created the Christ that we read in uh, the, the Gospels, and that it was a Roman creation. I mean, not that Jesus himself did not exist. They're not claiming that Jesus didn't exist. They're just saying that it's a lot the of the stories around him. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, mm -hmm. were, were Roman stories written in Rome and adopting a lot of the same themes of Roman mythology, including this whole idea of resurrection. 
So I just, I find it interesting, the, these connections. So it's it's something that I've always thought about. And then you touch on this towards the end of your book and, and you touch on it in a way to show that, you know, the influences that the Aeneas story has played within our culture, especially in the Western world. Yeah, it's amazing how much Aeneas, how much Aeneas's myth did influence early Christianity. There's a book, it's um, Hardy, Robert, uh, Professor Hardy wrote an incredibly good book about the way the, the Aeneid had its influence on Christianity on and on Western literature. It's a book I reference quite a lot in my own book, which is which is thoroughly worth a read and stuff. But of course, the interesting thing is that that that, that although Aeneas lived in the Bronze Age and, and was a Bronze Age hero, his sort of um the, the, the story of his death and his um his ascension into heaven was sort of pretty much invented and written about at really about the same time as as the death, as you say, as the death of Caesar, and only shortly before the story of Jesus um, to, to, um, unfolded and, and was then recorded. So, so, so it's in your sort of space of a few decades in which all these different dis- disparate characters were, were thought to have died. Um, on the, 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 the resurrection bit is interesting because actually a lot of these a lot of the characters like Romulus, I don't think they were resurrected. They they died, and then once they were dead, the spirit was then taken up into uh, onto Olympus, um, and that happened with Hercules as well. And 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 initially, the stories about Aeneas involved him dying, and then his the, the 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 mortal the mortal part of his body was washed away by the river, and then the spirit was taken up to become a god. And he was only there's only a hint at him being physically resurrected. Coming, which which comes from about the three, the third, or even the fourth century AD, where where they sort of thought they'd make him a bit more like Jesus, if you like. But I thought to myself that actually the story of Aeneas came before the story of Jesus. So when you read the gospel stories of Jesus, is it possible that the gospel writers were making their their man Jesus just a little bit more like Aeneas? Because Aeneas, of course, was a very established figure. He, he was he was widely admired for being a pious, a, a, a very pious, a very holy man, a man who, who who led a very noble life, and then did ascend up onto into the pagan, um, the pagan version of heaven. And when Christianity came along, it's almost inevitable that, that that people who wanted people to think well of Jesus would say, "Well, well, let's make a comparison between him and this very established pious figure." So I, I can certainly see how the lives of these different people, when they were written up and and, and and perhaps embellished, how they could come together and how one life and the story of one person's life could influence another. And with Aeneas and Jesus, there was a definite interplay between the two. Uh, so one, initially Aeneas affecting the story of Jesus and later, later on Jesus affecting the way people wrote about Aeneas, um, making him, as I say, implying that he he was resurrected. Um, and that was a few hundred years later. So very, very interesting and um, a rather sort of fascinating way to end a book. Um, and it's rather nice, of course, to write a biography of, of somebody who, when the last last line isn't, well, he was buried, but the last line is, and off he went up to Olymp- Mount Olympus. And, you know, there he still is. If you believe in the pagan gods, he's still there watching us <laughs> to this very day. I wanted to, you know, emphasize this. This is a very well-researched book. I recommend, you know, the listeners to to pick up a copy. I mean, you can get it on Amazon, you can get it online anywhere. Uh so and, and it, from this, the publishers this... who are called Amberley. They're called Amberley Books, and you can get it direct from them as well. Okay. Well that's that's good. I'm sure they have a, a US branch where people can order it directly uh through them as well. But anyway, I wanted to 
again, you know, thank you for, for coming onto the program. This has been a wonderful conversation, an absolute pleasure. I look forward to your future research. I don't know what you have cooking. I don't know what you have planned, but I'm sure it's going to be just as exciting as this book, you know, this profile of Aeneas. Well, I'll tell you what, I've got a big file on um, Hercules as well. Um, oh, Hercules. Whether, I, whether I've got the energy, the energy or the um, resources to, to turn it into a book, I don't know. But, I mean, Aeneas and Hercules occupied the same sort of space. And in fact, you were talking about Tegea earlier, and I, I have a feeling, is there a temple of Hercules there? I, I think there might have been. There's I don't remember. I think I'm sure Hercules went there, but where where didn't Hercules go? So as I did the research for Aeneas, I was also thinking, well, if there's somewhere nearby that Hercules went, I'll go there as well. So so I've got a vast amount of material about Hercules. That might be a future book. I say if I've got the energy at the moment, I'm doing well. Then that's exciting. I look forward to doing 19th century uh, English landscape painters. To when you actually put it down to writing and get it published. But anyway, thanks again. I, I I wanted to you know carve out some some time to see if you have any final words for our listeners before we depart. Well, I'd just like to say thank you all very much for listening. I do hope you buy the book and 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 and, and Petros, it's it's no, it's really the, what you've said about my book is really really nice. It's very uh, gratifying to spend a huge amount of, when you spend a huge amount of time writing a book. It's nice if a few people actually read it and like it, and you've done both. So I'd say absolutely. Well, thank you. And it's, it's really, really lovely to, to hear what you had to say about it. And I'm going to that bit about me being like D.H. Lawrence. I think you might find me quoting that occasionally. No, you said you were going to quote the authoritative guy or authoritative. Uh, <laughs> I'll quote that as well. Yeah. You know, <laughs> but thank uh, you. Research really, on and we have come to an end with another great episode. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Substack newsletter where you will get a lot more awesome historical content. Also, let me know your thoughts and whether you'd like to see more community-driven discourse via the new Substack threads feature accessible from the Substack Reader mobile application. Got something to say? Or do you have ideas for topics to cover in future episodes? Then be sure to share those comments at diggingupthepast.net or simply email me at petros at petroscatupis.com. Who knows? It may even be featured in an upcoming newsletter, video, or podcast episode. This is Petros Katupis, signing off.